this week on the Back Table Podcast. So th- there are multiple factors and different types of biologics that the patients can be put on. So it, it is an actual long conversation with a patient to try to decide which one. And then even once we decide which one, is this something that is going to be administered in the office so I can monitor you and make sure that you're compliant? Or is this something that you're going to self-administer at home or someone's going to administer to you? And then there's questions about frequency in terms of dosing. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast. Here we are all about medical education and otolaryngology, and we've got a great show for you today. Thanks for stopping by the podcast. Hey, everyone. Really exciting news. Our listeners asked and we have answered. We now have CME available. You can get AMA Category 1 CME for listening to Backtable and then filling out a reflection. You can find the CME links on the episode pages at backtable.com, or you can also find the CME links in the show notes. It's a small cost for the credit, much less than you would spend at a conference, and it helps support the show. Powered by CMEFI, using AI technology to bring the right education to the right place at the right time. You can do this in just a few minutes. If you're already listening to Backtable, might as well get a CME credit for it. Again, this helps support the show and allows us to keep bringing you great content. Now on with the episode. Quick introductions. My name is Ashley Agan, and I'm a general ENT in Dallas, Texas. And my name is Gopi Shah. I'm a pediatric ENT at UT Southwestern Dallas, Texas as well. How are you doing this morning, Ash? I'm great. How are you, Gopi? I'm doing good, enjoying a little bit of an extra turn back, fall back, turn the, That's the right. extra, hour. extra hour of sleep. So good. And so the one, the one perk about it, I guess. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, we have a very exciting show today. Um, we have Dr. Matthew Ryan. He's a professor of otolaryngology at UT Southwestern in Dallas, Texas. His focus is rhinology, allergy, and skull-based surgery. Dr. Ryan was a past president of the AAOA and was director of CME for the AAOA for several years. You may remember him from Backtable at ENT, episode 26, Allergic Rhinitis and Immunotherapy. He is here today with Dr. Cecilia Damask. Dr. Cecilia Damask is an otolaryngologist practicing in Lake Mary ENT and Allergy in Lake Mary, Florida. She's a fellow of the American Osteopathic College of Otolaryngology, Head Neck Surgery, as well as a fellow for the American Academy of Otolaryng- Otolaryngic Allergy. She serves as a national member of the Allergy and Immunology Committee for the American Academy of Otolaryngology. And they are here today to talk to us about the use of biologic agents in allergy and otolaryngology. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ryan and Dr. Damask. Thank you. Thanks for having us. This is great. I guess we'll first start out if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice. Sure. I am a comprehensive otolaryngologist in private practice. And I do all spectrum of otolaryngology, but I have a heavy focus on allergy in my practice. And that includes other things like asthma and allergic skin conditions. And so I have a lot of experience with the various biologics and have been doing them in my practice probably, wow, for more than five years, uh, probably for about seven years. And I also do clinical research, and I was lucky enough to be a site for two of the different clinical trials for biologics for nasal polyps. I was a site for the Nucala trial, as well as for the AstraZeneca uh, Facenra trial. Dr. Shaw, Dr. Agan, thanks for having me. Matt Ryan here. I am a rhinologist at UT Southwestern. Born in, not born in Dallas, but raised in Dallas, went away for 20 years and came back to UT Southwestern about 14 years ago to join Brad Marple and have uh, really enjoyed my time in Dallas and developing a rhinology and allergy practice. And I'm excited to talk about biologics because I, I think the advent of these new agents is going to change our treatment approach for patients with nasal polyp disease and especially help us in uh, situations where previously we were consigned to failure. And and now we've got a new tool that's going to help us get optimal outcomes for patients. I'm really excited to talk about this. Awesome. Well, let's get into it. 
As far as just kind of like laying the groundwork for immunomodulators, biologics, what are we what are we talking about as far as this this class of medications? You know, how, how do they work? How is it different than our typical kind of traditional toolkit of what we use to treat um, allergies? So I'll jump in on that one, Dr. Agan. The the biologics are monoclonal antibodies that are available for the treatment of a variety of conditions and. We know about many of them through TV ads because there's a lot of direct-to-consumer marketing being done for these monoclonal antibody therapies that can treat a range of conditions, everything from thyroid eye disease to ulcerative colitis to psoriasis, asthma, skin conditions, and now finally nasal polyp disease. And they are very different from small molecule pharmaceutical agents that are really have been the mainstay of our uh, medical treatment approach uh, throughout the history of medicine. Small molecules are much easier to produce. Their dosing is in a lot of ways simpler. They can be given orally. And these mono, I guess one big distinction with these monoclonal antibody therapies, the biologics, is that uh, they have to be administered parenterally. So uh, and usually that's intramuscular, though there are some IV preparations as well. Or I say intramuscular, I meant subcutaneous, actually. Right, Dr. Damask? That's correct. Yeah, so they can't be taken orally uh, because they are essentially antibodies. And Dr. Damask, you've been using this, you said, for about the last five years of your practice. For what patients? Like, what, are, what indications have you been uh, using it for in your practice? My gateway, I guess, to biologics and what I started with was different skin conditions. So I've been using biologics for chronic spontaneous urticaria for patients who had failed management with high doses of antihistamines to suppress their urticaria. I've been using it for other skin conditions like atopic dermatitis. So patients who have failed management with various topical steroids or calcineurin inhibitors. I have used it a lot for asthma for allergic asthma, as well as for eosinophilic asthma or asthma that is corticosteroid dependent. And then I have a few patients that I have on biologics for EGPA or what we used to call Churg-Strauss. And then most recently, I have patients on biologics specifically just for nasal polyps. For most patients, would you say traditional therapy is still the mainstay and that biologics are really more of a, you know, next tier, like when things aren't working? Or is this something we should be thinking about earlier? I would say that for most conditions, the biologics are the last line of therapy. And the reason that we see so many TV ads is because the biologics are very expensive medications. There's a lot of money involved in this. And so in general, for most chronic health conditions for which we have a biologic available, the traditional or standard therapies are are really what we rely on. And so it's a select niche group of patients for whom a biologic is appropriate. And that's, to some extent, I think, a function of the, the cost of these therapies. That's something that we have to consider you know, when we're making decisions about whether or not we want to start a patient on a biologic. What are your thoughts, Cecilia? I agree. I, these are patients who we have tried traditional therapy whether for asthma that's doing inhaled corticosteroids or adding on a long-acting uh, beta agonist or a llama, and these patients are failing and requiring other systemic therapy like systemic steroids multiple times a year to control their asthma, then that's someone I would consider for a biologic. And, and same with our, with our nasal polyp patients. It's someone who has failed uh, other management and the biologics, at least in their PI, they're listed as being add-on for maintenance therapy that have failed with intranasal corticosteroids. Yeah. So from a regulatory standpoint, the FDA considers them and usually these, these agents to be an add-on to other treatments. And, and certainly from a payer standpoint, you know, getting approval from a third-party payer for these agents usually entails documenting uh, a failure or lack of adequate response to the traditional therapy for whatever the condition is. And I think the, the trade-off from a payer standpoint, from a societal standpoint, 
is that while these agents are very expensive, they are sometimes saving healthcare costs. So if you think of asthma patients and you're keeping them out of the emergency room, keeping them out of the hospital, preventing death, uh, then they can be considered of, of great value if you're just looking at things monetarily. And then the other aspect is the, the quality of life impact of these agents, which is difficult to quantify. But for most of these conditions for which we have a biologic available, there is a significant number of patients who do not get adequate relief with traditional therapies. And so the biologics become the thing that actually provides that quality of life benefit that we've sought for so long. And it's hard to put a price tag on that. You know, also, Matt, when you think about cost, I think one thing to think about is what would happen to patients who are on systemic steroids multiple times a year over many years. And there have been you know, studies that have shown things that we know, like avascular necrosis of the hip and cataracts. But then there are other things like sepsis, thromboembolytic events that can occur with different bursts of steroids. And so also by controlling patients' disease better and not needing so many bursts of steroids, that's also a potential savings and also definitely an improvement in their quality of life as well. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of, um, you know, just focusing it on uh, chronic sinusitis with nasal polyps, I wanted to, you know, get into, you know, which I feel like, I think, you know, if we think of chronic sinusitis with nasal polyps as having a lot of subtypes, right, depending on whether it's AFS, CRS with nasal polyps, AERD, um, is there a certain group that this is good for? Or is this, do we think that this is going to be beneficial to anybody with chronic sinusitis and nasal polyps? Who, who's going to benefit? So in, in the trials, when they did the studies, AFS was con uh, an, an eliminating thing that patients or subjects could not be enrolled in the trials. But there were definitely AERD patients that were in the trials. And I, I think to better answer that question, we kind of want to take a step back and talk about maybe phenotypes and endotypes a little bit and talk about how to classify and potentially a new classification system of chronic rhinosinusitis. So what are the phenotypes, Cecilia, of chronic rhinosinusitis? Well, can we back up and talk maybe a little bit about endotypes first and just about what is T2 versus non-T2? Sure. So when we think about trying to break things down and we look at things that are T2-mediated or non-T2-mediated, things that are T2-mediated can be mediated by different cell types or different cytokines like the interleukin-4, interleukin-5, interleukin-13. And once we identify someone as potentially having a T2 endotype, then we can break them down into different phenotypes. And the T2 endotype is, that's similar to Th2, right? I remember hearing about Th1 and Th2 inflammation. So si similar-ish in that there are really different ways that those pathways can be triggered. So you're right. I mean, we, we have our traditional pathway that we think of as being the allergic pathway where allergens come along and can activate a mast cell to release different type 2 cytokines like interleukin-5, interleukin-4, and interleukin-13. And then interleukin um Four can cause B cell class switching and production of IgE. Interleukin-5 is important for eosinophils and basically tells eosinophils everything to do, like mature, to proliferate. And then interleukin-13 we know is involved in things like uh, mucus response or remodeling or cell recruitment. But those same cytokines can be activated by other things besides a Th2 cell, they can be activated in an allergy-independent manner by this thing called an ILC2 cell. So, but otherwise, for our purposes, T2, Th2 are almost synonymous, it sounds like. It's the same group of cytokines that are involved. Yes, same group of cytokines. And Dr. Egan, to get to your question, uh, since we're talking about inflammatory endotypes, 
the biologics that we have available for treatment of CRS with polyps are specific for those type two cytokines, IL-4 and 13, IL-5 and IgE. And so I, I think if we're trying to decide who a biologic's for, we want to try to identify uh, a type two endotype. And maybe in our discussion, we'll get to that. But I wanted you to talk about phenotypes, Dr. Damask. The phenotypes of CRS, how is that different from endotype? So a phenotype is something that you can observe. It's an observable characteristic, whereas an endotype explains or is a mechanism of how something happens. So a phenotype is something that we could look in and say, oh, we see polyps or we, or we don't see polyps. But in terms of CRS with NP, different phenotypes would be something like CCAD or AFRS or eosinophilic uh, CRS. Okay. So how do we stratify patients into, you know, whether they're a T2 endotype so that we can know, okay, they're a candidate for biologics. Is, do, should we be getting labs? Is it based on what our clinical exam looks like? How do we know? So I, I think there are some things uh, that we can see in clinic that might clue us in to someone being a type two patient. And then yes, there are that are there are laboratory studies or pathology specimen, but we're not going to have that available to us in in a clinical setting. But I I think one of the biggest indicators is if someone is steroid responsive. And so if they have a good response to a steroid, then that is someone who most likely has T2-mediated disease. And does a medrol dose pack count? Or are we talking like a larger doses of prednisone? Any steroid? Any steroid. Someone that's steroid responsive most likely has some T2-mediated disease. And the other thing I look at, Dr. Agan, is... If someone does have a history of allergic rhinitis or has a history of asthma, I think those can sort of point to a type 2 endotype. There are some labs that I will draw. So I'll get a total serum IgE and I'll get a, a CBC with diff to look at the peripheral eosinophil count. And in general, if I see really high total serum IgE or I see a really high peripheral eosinophil count, that makes me think type 2. That's not set in stone by any means. Uh, I will say for some of the clinical trials of these biologics, they did have certain thresholds for, let's say, an eosinophil count to be accepted into the trial because these agents, some of them, and says Dr. Damask, I think, can tell us more precisely, but some of them are specifically for CRS with nasal polyps with an eosinophilic component. Definitely for the trials for asthma, they had to have certain cutoffs of eosinophil, peripheral eosinophil levels to be involved in the trials. For omalizumab, for nasal polyps, they did have to have um, a minimum IgE level of 30 or above. But for the dupilumab and for the MEPO trials, there was no minimum requirement of peripheral eosinophilia. However, when they have done post hoc analysis and looked at response, like in the MEPO trial, they saw that patients who post hoc, so this is not in the actual trial, but this is analysis afterwards, patients who had peripheral eosinophils over 300, they had a larger improvement in their nasal polyp score or improvement in less need for systemic steroids if their peripheral eosinophils were over 300. So that's an interesting thing. So that these trials enrolled people that perhaps didn't have type 2 inflammation as the, the etiology of their polyps. And uh, for us as clinicians, if we want to get the best results, we need to try to specifically identify those patients who have type 2 inflammation as the driver. And in, in those folks, uh, we, we can see dramatic improvement. And so there are a variety of other forms of nasal polyp disease that are not type 2. So you can think about cystic fibrosis as a great example. So cystic fibrosis is, you know, the development of nasal polyps in those patients is not necessarily driven by abnormal eosinophilic inflammation going on. And so their problem oftentimes is 
as a consequence of disrupted mucociliary clearance. They have colonization with uh, various bacteria that promote inflammation. And uh, a CF patient doesn't necessarily get that great of a benefit with nasal polyps, do they? Or with uh, steroids, do they, Dr. Shaw? No, I mean, we traditionally think that they're oral steroid resistant. Uh, the polyps don't respond as well. That being said, uh, in terms of topical steroids, we will recommend Flonase or sometimes Pulmacort rinses um, topically. So that's just an example of a case of nasal polyps. It's not steroid responsive and type 2 mediated. And, and we see the same pattern in adults. And that can be sometimes a challenge, but we do see adults with, with nasal polyps, but they don't respond well to steroids. If you look at them endoscopically, sometimes you'll see some creamy white pus interdigitating among the, the polyps. And it's very different from AFS where we see eosinophilic mucin. So there are some, some clinical clues, but I think as Dr. Damask mentioned, the, the trial of steroids and assessing steroid treatment response is a great way to identify the type 2 polyp patient. It also sounds like it would be helpful to to screen and ask about things like asthma and skin things, you know, like asking, do you also happen to have atopic dermatitis and asthma? Because if that's positive as well, it sounds like, you know, you're leaning more towards, okay, this is a type two patient. Exactly. Absolutely. Yes. Do you think we'll have criteria that develop eventually to help us kind of say, okay, these are the four things we need to say you're type two or not? What does the EPOS document say on that or the Euphoria document? There are some European position papers that have come out. They tend to be really broad in their uh, approach, so they're very inclusive in terms of who should potentially qualify for treatment with a biologic. But there are some uh, criteria that are mentioned in those documents. So in, in EPOS, they listed several different criteria for consideration. And one was a diagnosis of comorbid asthma. One was a significant loss of smell. So anosmia is considered also to be a marker of T2 inflammation. Another criteria was need for systemic steroids, and that was more than two courses of systemic steroids over a year. And then they listed evidence of type 2 inflammation. And in EPOS, they define that as blood EOs over 250 or a total IgE over 100 or tissue EOs of greater than 10 per high power field. And then their last criteria was a significantly impaired quality of life, having a SNOT 22 greater than 40. And so according to EPOS, they said if you have three or more of those criteria met, that could be potentially someone to consider for a biologic if they have bilateral polyp disease and have had previous sinus surgery. So somewhat complicated, I think, Dr. Agan. <laughs> for sure. And those are, those are pretty broad inclusion criteria. And a peripheral eosinophil count of 250 is within the normal range at our laboratory. That's not what you would consider peripheral eosinophilia by, by any means. And when we're talking about tissue eosinophils, is that um, like a biopsy of polyps in the nose, like from maybe from your sinus surgery that you did or something? Yeah, that's based on a surgical specimen. I suppose you could do an office biopsy of a polyp in clinic and use that, but there's a lot of trickiness to that approach. And part of it has to do with sampling, because if you just take a patient who has a nose full of polyps, those polyps are not all the same. They can be quite different, both grossly and histopathologically, if you look at them under a microscope. And uh, where you choose to start counting eosinophils, I think, really matters. And so the eosinophils are not necessarily evenly distributed. So it's a tricky thing. And I will tell you, our pathologists don't do that. Uh, they do not count eosinophils. And I was going to say, do you have to ask them? Because I don't think I've ever seen that on a report. Yeah, there are some medical centers where they're able to work with the pathologists and the pathologists will, will count eosinophils per high-powered field. And there are other disease states in which that sort of approach is standard. And so, for example, eosinophilic esophagitis with an esophageal biopsy, uh, it's pretty well defined what, what constitutes an abnormal eosinophilia. And we just don't have that yet for nasal polyps. So I don't use that 
personally, but some people do. So when do you start to, okay, so we've had a patient, they come to your clinic, um, they have uh, nasal polyps. You know, there's a history of asthma. There's some loss of smell. You try them on steroids. They get better, but let's say it's been three months and they're back to see you and their nose is full again. You know, let's say they're sinus surgery naive. Is a biologic in your armamentarium just yet? Or what's your management now? How is biologics weaved into your treatment plans for these patients? I'm a sinus surgeon, and so I'll give you my <laughs> perspective, but I want to hear what Dr. Damask has to say about a surgery-naive patient with a temporary response to systemic steroid treatment. How do you bring up this, this issue of biologics as the next step? So with patients, it, you know, it, it is a discussion, and I do try to encourage patients to have sinus surgery because this is going to be an ongoing disease that we're going to need to manage. And I want to be able to deliver good topical therapy for them. And I think the best way to do that is to have a good sinus surgery so that we can then better administer topical therapy because we know just doing an intranasal steroid spray, most of it ends up on the inferior turbinate or on the floor. And unless a patient has really bad asthma, that isn't controlled, that I would be thinking about a biologic for their asthma, or unless they had a lot of other comorbid conditions that would preclude them from surgery, I typically am going to recommend surgery in, in a surgery-naive patient. And I feel the same way, Dr. Egan. In general, the, the treatment for CRS with polyps is topical intranasal steroids, saline irrigations, and uh, brief courses of systemic steroids. And if I'm seeing a patient initially and I give them my standard prednisone taper along with intranasal steroids and saline, and they those polyps melt away and they do well, we will just follow that patient over time. And if they do start coming back every three months with regrown polyps, that's when, certainly in my mind, surgery is the next step. And, and the goal of surgery is not just to remove polyps, but to create wide sinus openings for all of the sinuses so that topical steroids can be delivered. And I, I think of this uh, somewhat like asthma, where in asthma, the primary maintenance therapy is inhaled steroids, and you're delivering the steroid medication down into the small airways exactly where the problem is. We'd like to do the same thing with our polyp patients. And so we need complete surgery so that the steroid that the patient squirts up their nose can get onto all the mucosal services and we can control that inflammation. And so that is my standard treatment approach and I think is uh, the right one and, and the most cost-effective one. There might be some select circumstances where uh, a surgery is not the right thing. And, and Dr. Damask mentioned some of that, the comorbidities that make surgery inadvisable. So a, a great example would be a patient with a mechanical heart valve who is... It has to be chronically anticoagulated and they can only be off their anticoagulation for the time of surgery and otherwise need to be back on their standard anticoagulation regimen immediately after surgery. I would treat that patient with a biologic rather than surgery just because of the risk of postoperative hemorrhage. So there are some examples like that. I will tell you, given my track record of doing sinus surgery and watching patients come back with recurrent inflammation and being frustrated by it, I do feel like I've detected a pattern where I can recognize those patients who are going to not do well long-term after surgery. And those are patients who have severe asthma and also have sky-high peripheral eosinophil counts, like a thousand or more. And so if I'm seeing someone with severe asthma and nasal polyps and, and they've got a peripheral eosinophil count over a thousand, I will talk to them about biologics as a, an option other than surgery. Primarily because I think with those patients, I'm, I'm likely to do surgery and end up starting them on a biologic anyway. And so we, we can skip the whole surgery part if uh, there's someone like that. But those are pretty rare patients, I would say. 
And you you mentioned your topical nasal steroids. I was just curious, since we're talking about it, do you have a topical steroid of choice? And how do you like to deliver it? So, I'll, I mean, I'll do um, budesonide irrigation. Also, if a patient doesn't like it in that it's not convenient, it, it takes a lot of time, they travel a lot, and they don't want to have to do rinses or irrigations, I, I will do the EDS um, fluticasone device. Which is called Xhance. That's the one where you're like blowing, you kind of blow it into your nose so that it, that distribution is supposedly um, better, right? Yeah, it's this cool asthma inhaler type thing, but you blow uh, while having the thing stuck in your nose. And it's essentially double-dosed Flonase. So that's that's what it is from a molecular standpoint. But the device distributes the medicine in a, in a way that's much better than a standard uh, Flonase or any other allergy nose spray kind of device. And they've got actual data. You know, we do a lot of off-label stuff, putting steroids up the nose. They've got actual data that shows that their product works for nasal polyps compared to placebo. So they're kind of ahead of the game in that. I personally like to use budesonide full strength as a nasal drop with the patient having their head inverted. And uh, there are a lot of patients that don't like that because it's a hassle to do it from a positioning standpoint. The budesonide vial has two milliliters in it. And so you're essentially putting one milliliter up each nostril. And that's a lot of liquid to go up your nose. If you compare that to a standard nasal steroid spray that has about 100 microliters per puff. And so for those patients that don't like the doing the budesonide just as a drop up their nose, I'll go to the Xhance as a much better tolerated treatment approach. I'm not sure which works better, though. No idea there. You said um, budesonide full dose. It comes in 0.25 milligrams per ml, 0.5 milligrams per ml, one. Is your go-to 0.25? What's your, what's full dose for you? Well, I use the 0.5 and that's the most cost-effective for most patients because that's generic. I do have some patients I've gone up to the one milligram dose, but I think that's still branded. And so there can be problems getting that reimbursed or insurance companies balk at that. But anyway, the high dose steroids are the name of the game for the treatment of most patients with nasal polyps. And and we can get great treatment results with that for the ma- vast majority of people. Just to kind of continue to elaborate on that, what is your high-dose steroid burst for these patients? Well, my standard uh, prednisone taper is 20 days long, and it is 40 milligrams a day for five days, then 30 milligrams a day for five days, and then 20, and then 10. And that's, it's very arbitrary. That's what I use for the majority of people. If there are patients who have had adverse responses to systemic steroids, I might go lower. If there's someone who's really big, we have a more powerful taper that's approximately 16 days, so it's a little bit shorter, but we hold them at 60 milligrams for nine days straight. And that's a lot of steroid. And there have now been some some recommendations that have come out quantifying a safe maximal amount of steroid per year. And I think with my standard treatment approach, if I'm using my 20-day taper three times a year on someone, I am significantly exceeding that. And that's when I've got to be thinking about other treatment approaches. I also do 40, but I only do three days at a time. So mine's 12. So I, I taper down over 12 days. So yeah, I think I think continuing with this patient that we're, we're kind of using as our example patient, now that they're back, they've had sinus surgery, and we're starting to think of biologics. What, what's, um, how do you, how does that conversation, yeah, Yeah. what are the side effects? What do you tell them? How do they do it? Well, so if our patient with Sierras with polyps and asthma goes through the standard treatment paradigm, I do my surgery on them, start them on high dose steroids and they come back one or two months later and they already have polypoid edema filling their ethmoid cavity and they're starting to notice more mucus secretions. Maybe their sense of smell goes away again then I'm really frustrated because I'm in a situation where I'm having to give them yet again another round of systemic steroids. And I'm kind of expecting that it's only going to work for a little while. And they're going to be back where they started again. And and ultimately, left alone over time, they're going to regrow their polyps and not only lose their sense of smell, but also become congested and start to have nasal airway obstruction. And I certainly in my practice have 
some nice examples of exactly that scenario where the patient is coming back after surgery every few months and I'm giving them more and more steroids. And uh, we know that's not good. And even if the patient doesn't get any side effects from those, those steroid bursts, it's not a good treatment approach for a disease that could last 10 years or longer. And so that is precisely the patient in whom I will recommend a biologic and prescribe a biologic. Cecilia, maybe you can elaborate on what that conversation looks like with the patient. And are we, you know, it sounds like that there's going to be need for insurance preauthorization regardless. And, you know, as a patient, I'm sure big concerns are going to be, how much is this going to cost? Am I going to be on this forever? Is it a pill or can I, do I have to inject all those types of things? Um, I'm sure come up. So th there are multiple factors and different types of biologics that the patients can be put on. So it, it is an actual long conversation with a patient to try to decide which one. And then even once we decide which one, is this something that is going to be administered in the office so I can monitor you and make sure that you're compliant? Or is this something that you're going to self-administer at home or someone's going to administer to you? And then there's questions about frequency in terms of dosing. So one of them, dupilumab for everybody is, is every two weeks. And Nucala or um, Mepolizumab for everybody is every four weeks. Omalizumab can be dosed based on their IgE and their weight. And so it can be variable. It can be something that they might get every two weeks or it could be something that they might get every four weeks. And also with the omalizumab, the number of injections can vary. So some people could get one injection. Some people could get three injections every two or four weeks. So there's that discussion about frequency. And each one of the biologic companies has what I'll call a hub where you fill out an enrollment form, which basically tells the patient's insurance. It tells some baseline things about the patient, like they have failed with topical steroids or they have been on so many bursts of oral steroids. And you sign it kind of like a prescription. And the patient signs it saying that they give this hub permission to evaluate the patient's insurance for a benefits investigation. And then that benefits investigation will come back to the office and it will give you information about if the patient has any out-of-pocket, if they have any deductible, how much this would cost. And then also it will tell the office how the patient is to obtain the drug. So some patients get the drug through what's called a specialty pharmacy. So it's not your local Walgreens or CVS. It's a pharmacy that specializes in taking care of medicines that require special handling because they have to be refrigerated at a at a certain degree between two to eight degrees Celsius, like our immunotherapy. And these specialty pharmacies will coordinate delivery. Some patients, their insurance, especially our Medicare patients, for some of the biologics require what's called buy-in bill. And so that means the biologic has to be purchased by either your office or by an infusion center and then build to the insurance. So these hubs are very helpful and will sort all that out for you and send it back so that then you know which way the patient would have to go for a particular biologic. And then also what those hubs will do, as long as the patient signs permission for them to do so, they will look into copay assistance or different assistance programs to help the patients. And for all the different manufacturers that are out there, they all have really wonderful copay assistance programs that help the patient not only for the cost of the drug, but if you do administer in the office for uh, administration in the office as well. So I think for uh, commercial payers, there's really minimal out-of-pocket costs for patients. So the companies have arranged it so that it's not painful financially at all for the patient. And the treatments are very expensive, but of course the insurance pays for that. It's a little different with Medicare or Medicaid, because then the copay assistance is not allowed, it's prohibited. And so 
I have found that the biologics can be out of reach for Medicare patients because of what their expected out-of-pocket costs are. But to get back to your question, Dr. Reagan, I just tell patients this is an injection-based treatment, kind of like uh, an insulin shot, and you can give it yourself at home, and it's, it's not that hard to do. And from a side effect standpoint, these agents are, I think, extraordinarily safe. You'll see on the TV ads all sorts of disclaimers and warnings. Tell your doctor if you have a parasitic infection. Like, <laughs> you know, <it's> like <laughs> okay, I'm going to do that because I know I've got parasites. And so I better not start this, uh, you know, immunosuppressing biologic agent. So uh, the, the one side effect I know of is dupilumab can cause some, some cornea problems, some keratitis, eye irritation, conjunctivitis type symptoms with in some patients. But that's really the only practical side effect that I feel like doctors need to know about, at least with dupilumab. Now, omalizumab, mepolizumab, now also available for nasal polyps. Do those have any prominent side effects, Dr. Damas, that people ought to know about? So for all three of them, injection site reaction, you know, big surprise, uh, was, was a frequent or less than 10% reported side effect. But interesting for all three of them, arthralgia for nasal polyps, um, arthralgia was seen as a side effect. For Nucala, oral pharyngeal pain came up more frequency than placebo. And for omalizumab, abdominal pain and headache also came up more frequency, more frequently than placebo. But what have you seen in your practice, Dr. Damask? Because I've only seen the eye thing with dupilumab. I have seen nothing other than injection site reactions. They, they have been really well tolerated. And I, I will say for dupilumab specifically that I will monitor their peripheral eosinophils after I, before I start them and after I start them, because in the trial, there was some unmasking of eGPA in a very small percentage, but I still will monitor and I, and I have not seen that happen in, in any of my patients. So in general, I would say side effect wise, these are better than steroids. Yes, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And how do you pick which one out of you have these three to pick from? Is there are there certain patients that one is better for than the other? That's the million dollar question. That is a great <laughs> question. Things were so simple a year ago when all we had was <laughs> dupilumab available. So the, the the question a year ago was, should we consider a biologic in this patient? Now we have to consider if we're going to do a biologic, which one to prescribe and we do not have head-to-head -head trials. We probably never will. And so this may be a little bit like choosing a nasal steroid spray. And uh, we all have our preferred nasal steroid spray for one reason or another, and the reasons may not be great. And what's the difference between the three of them? Are they targeting different interleukins? Yes. So they are targeting different things. So like dupilumab, it targets the IL-4 receptor alpha, which then blocks signaling for interleukin-4 and interleukin-13. Omalizumab targets anti-IgE, and mepolizumab targets IL-5 and um, blocks IL-5 signaling, which then does not allow binding of um, IL-5 to the alpha chain receptor. But we don't have the ability clinically to assay for these different cytokine levels and decide that we should go after IgE or go after IL-4 as our therapeutic target. And they all work for the same kind of inflammation, the type 2 inflammation. The clinical trials have their nuances where there's some slight differences in terms of treatment results. And so you'll hear people say dupilumab shrunk the polyps more than omalizumab in their clinical trials, but you can't really compare trial to trial, at least not in a scientifically rigorous way. And so ultimately we're gonna be left having to make the decision. And uh, some of that I think might be based on Dr. Damask comorbid conditions that the patient has or on payers. Perhaps payers are gonna start weighing in here and Blue Cross will only pay for dupilumab and Humana will only pay for mepolizumab. We might face a situation like that. But really, I don't think we have an answer to your question, Dr. Hagan. No, I, I think it's hard. And then I do think 
Dosing-wise, things are different, and some patients may prefer a different dosing regimen. And so that that is one differentiator. And, you know, definitely, like Dr. Ryan said, it, it is very hard to compare them because with their trials, even the inclusion criteria for who was enrolled in the trial might be a little bit different between the different studies. And so that does make comparison very difficult. If a patient is a non-responder to one, is it reasonable to try them on a different one? Yes. That's done in asthma all the time, where you try one and if it doesn't work, you move on. And interestingly, what I've seen published in terms of appropriate duration of trial, if you will, is six months, which I think is outrageously long because I, th I think with these biologics, you're going to know within a month or two how well they're working for a patient. And, and my experience with dupilumab, since that's what we've had available to us, is that patients, uh, oftentimes their sense of smell can be restored as, as shortly as two weeks later after starting treatment. Yeah, and the euphoria guidelines say four months, but yes, um, the patients do get really quick response. So like you said, in the dupilumab trial, they saw the nasal congestion improve or the sense of smell improve as quickly as two weeks. In the MEPO trial, when they did their first reading in terms of reporting nasal congestion, they started to see a breakaway in terms of improvement in nasal congestion. So absolutely, they do definitely have a very quick onset. I agree. And then are they on these for a lifetime or is it like, okay, this is a two-year thing and then we're done or, okay, we're going to do it every six, for six months, every other year? I heard that said, at, I'm at a medical meeting right now down in San Antonio, and that was said from the podium, you know, if you start a biologic, they got to be on it for life. Do you agree? Well, let me ask you guys, have you ever tried to prescribe a nasal steroid spray to a patient? And they said, do I have to be on this forever? And what do you say back to them? Well, you probably say, Maybe. well, let's, may, let's first see if it works. And then <laughs> but a you nasal can steroid spray is over the counter. It's not injections. And it's well, topical. it's the same principle, though. It's the same principle in the sense that first you find out if it's going to work for the patient. And then you keep it going as long as you want to get the benefit from that particular agent. And it doesn't matter whether it's a biologic or a nasal steroid spray. And the truth is, people grow in to their disease and they grow out of their disease. And so if you're giving a nasal steroid spray to a 24-year-old patient, that doesn't mean they're going to be using that nasal steroid spray when they're 70. There's a, a good chance that their rhinitis problem is going to improve as they get older. And the same is true with nasal polyp disease. There's a natural history to the disease. It's not necessarily something you take to the grave. And so that's my retort to that lifetime treatment question. And as far as the age appropriate, you know, minimum, how, how old do patients need to be to be able to be a candidate for a biologic? Is are pediatric patients eligible? For nasal polyps, it's 18 and up. But for other indications, like for asthma, several of them go down to six years of age and up for atopic dermatitis down to six and for hives down to 12. So we'll probably be seeing these biologics get a pediatric indication for polyps too, hopefully for you, Dr. Shaw. I'm, I'm hoping. Because <laughs> we now I mention it to the families, you know, especially if they're, you know, 14, 15-year-old teenage kid, you know, so that when they turn 18, I'm going to be like, please go see Dr. Matt Ryan because there's something else we've, you know, we can do. <laughs> and then I, I'm, I'm better about, you know, in pediatrics, everything's very multi-D and allergy immunology, pulmonary, they're all very involved, especially in the kids that have asthma, atypic dermatitis. So if they have any of those, you know, on their problem list and I see polyps, I'll reach out to the, the pulmonologist or allergist just to say, hey, because... You know, I'm not prescribing this, obviously, in our clinic, but uh, many of them are. Um, and so I have seen a handful of kids for other indications get this, and it's their their nose is beautiful and their number of surgeries like down significantly and quality of life so much better. So I'm hopeful yeah. as well. Yeah, I've definitely seen patients who were put on a biologic by their pulmonologist or some, somebody else and who were seeing me for allergic rhinitis or so, and they're like, oh, I'm, I'm, 100% better. Like that's not even an issue anymore. So it's pretty amazing. One one last question as we round this out. One thing that we didn't talk about in the algorithm um, of kind of, you know, working up these patients from beginning to 
you know, potentially biologics is does allergy immunotherapy, is that a branch anywhere, you know, before you get to biologic or or during or concurrently or like how does that overlap or is that too, is that opening a whole nother podcast? <laughs> that that perhaps is opening a whole nother <laughs> podcast. The Well, I think in practice, what are people doing? I think for patients who have rhinitis, rhinosinusitis, doctors are getting allergy testing. They're starting patients on immunotherapy with the idea that the immunotherapy um, might help somehow with the inflammatory disease problem and maybe help in the long-term control of something like uh, AFS. We just don't have high-level clinical evidence that that is the case. And I would say in in my practice, we only would uh, consider immunotherapy in a patient who has clear comorbid rhinitis that is coincidental with their CRS with polyps. And it would kind of be a a last-ditch treatment approach. So I would say before the advent of biologics, I would probably be more likely to recommend immunotherapy as a another thing as we're piling on antihistamines and leukotriene receptor antagonists and every other non-steroid type uh, medication that we can throw at a patient. Uh, I think those days are over now with the advent of biologics because if in my experience, patients who have clear type 2 disease, when they get started on a biologic after they've had complete sinus surgery, they do beautifully. And not only do they self-discontinue all their topical intranasal treatments, but they, they self-discontinue their asthma medications. And so literally, they're on nothing but their biologic, and they feel happy as can be. And so that's the revolutionary thing that we now have available to us. It's very exciting. Awesome. I think that's a great place to to end it. Unless there's any any other take-home points or pearls that you guys feel like we've missed. Uh, we, we've covered a lot today. This is great. Thank you for having us, Dr. Egan, Dr. Shaw. Thank you. Thank you for your time. And it was, again, very nice to meet you. Thank you for coming on, Dr. Damask. And of course, Dr. Ryan, it's always wonderful to have these conversations and see you. For our listeners, thank you for stopping by. Any new listeners, thank you for checking us out. You can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, Apple, and Ghana. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Backtable ENT. We love feedback. Reach out to us for topics, ideas, speakers, or if you ever want to come on the show. Ash, if I'm, am I missing anything? Like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. That's very helpful. Thanks for stopping by the show today. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thanks, you guys. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team lead is Karen Yen with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.